Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Even there. Well, I cannot tell you how good it is to see you this morning, to know that you set your clocks forward. Toward the end of my sermon, as people start streaming in, you can look at them and laugh because they forgot. Hey, it is good to have you here. Before we get into this final uh, piece of this series, I want to talk about a couple things. Today, uh, we are five weeks away from celebrating the greatest event in all of human history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And with his death and resurrection, our eternity and our life and our world has been forever changed, and we get to celebrate that. We live in that reality every single day, but we take a special day every year to celebrate that. We're five weeks away from that. And I want to just challenge you over the course of these next five weeks to be praying for and inviting five people to come and celebrate and to hear that message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is for every single person. And maybe you say, well, you know, you always ask me to invite people and there's only so many people. Let me maybe stretch your understanding of who would even be open for an invitation. Obviously, those people that God has put into your life, and if you were here last week, that I believe God has ordained to be a part of your life as you talk with them, as they see your life, as you have conversations and pray with them. And maybe they're far from God, and maybe God would open their heart enough to, to respond to an invitation. Pray for and invite those people. I believe there's also people in your sphere of influence that may have grown up in church and for whatever reason they walked away and they may not necessarily be mad at God or hate God, they might be, but they've had church in their background and so maybe they're even open to saying, you know what, that kind of reconnects me with the past and maybe they'd be open. There's also very likely a, a chance that there are people that you know or in your sphere of influence that would say, yeah, I'm a follower after Christ, and yes, Cornwall's my church home. I mean, I was just there last Easter. And they would be really open to coming back. They just need a reminder. And so they're really open to that. And as, as Pastor Brian said, if you know of any family or friends that live in the Skagit Valley that are not currently connected with the church, would you invite them to join our Skagit community on Easter for the grand opening? And it's going to be a tremendous weekend there. So that's coming up. And so I'm just challenging you. This isn't for the sake of reaching goals. Sorry for the cheesiness. It's not about goals. It's really about souls. It's about having people understand the truth of being able to live in the resurrection reality of Jesus Christ every single day and for all of eternity. So be praying for and inviting on that. The other thing is I want to say is next weekend is a huge weekend, not only here, but in Skagit. Skagit, for you, do not miss next weekend. Next weekend is for you the ceremonially crossing of the Jordan River. You're leaving the temporary digs that you've had for four and a half years, going into the Promised Land, crossing the Jordan River, a.k.a. I-5, and going into the Promised Land, into your new facilities. And there, what you're going to do next weekend is I believe you're going to set the spiritual foundation for what God is going to do in that tool that he's given to us, that building 
And if you're familiar with that, that analogy that I use, that when the Israelites, when the children of Israel went into the promised land, they had elders stop in the Jordan River and bring up stones as a monument so they could tell their children, this is God's faithfulness. Now, we're not asking you to stop in the middle of I-5 and pick up rocks. That would not be wise. But we believe that this will be a day you can point back to your children and grandchildren and say, I remember the day we came here and what God's faithfulness. So don't miss that. Here in Bellingham, do not miss next weekend. Because next weekend, my friend Grant Fishbook from Christ the King Bellingham is going to join me here on this platform. And together we're going to team teach a sermon that we're just excited about this. And so you don't want to miss this. On the same platform, you will have the ponytail and the crybaby at the same time in the same room. So don't tell him I said that. Just show up and be a part of that next weekend. All right. So we've been in this series for the last four or five weeks on Psalm 139. And it has just been an amazing uh, Word of God from this psalm. And I wanted to give you a little bit of background for me and my history with this psalm. The first memory that I have of connecting with Psalm 139 came in my senior year of high school. My dad was a pastor, and in, in uh, January and February of 1981, he taught a series through Psalm 139. Now, I really don't remember much of that series. There's one little specific piece of that series that I remember. The rest of it, I don't remember. I wish I had tapes of that. I would have loved to go back and listen to hear how my dad uh, opened this passage up. But I remember as a senior in high school, as I sat through dad walking us through Psalm 139, just thinking, this is an amazing psalm. And over the years, it's been very, very powerful in different seasons of my life, different aspects of ministry. And even into this series, as I prepared for and have immersed myself in this psalm, it has been an amazing amazing piece of God's word for me. I mean, even this last week, that whole piece of how God is ordained every day, and we talked about this in our small group, but what does that look like? And so last week I was going through a drive-thru at a coffee place and ordered a nice warm cup of chocolatey goodness, and as I was waiting there talking with the barista, waiting for this to be done, she said, well, what do you got on tap for today? What's your day look like? I said, well, I'm going to do some studying and run some errands. She said, that sounds like a good day. I said, good day. It's ordained. Best day ever. She looked at me like, should you be out unsupervised? But this idea that God has ordained this day and he's that involved. Last week after the 11 o'clock service, uh, Shar Hart talked about the impact of this, of, this, um, of this psalm, not just in the series, but in her life. That, that Psalm 139 was her mom's favorite psalm. And she talked about towards the end of her mom's life, as each of the kids would go and sit with her and read to her different things, every one of her children read to her Psalm 139 because it was her favorite psalm. And she had, before she had gotten really bad, she had planned out what she wanted as elements in her funeral service. And the reading of Psalm 139 was one of the things that she desperately wanted. And she was 90 years old when she passed away. And Shar said when the doctors came in, when they filled out the death certificate, at the time of death, they wrote down 139. Almost as if to say, in life and in death. This psalm has words of strength and beauty and, and hope and power. It's an incredible psalm. And so today we're going to finish this out. So if you have your Bible or your tablet or phone want to follow along, Psalm 139. We're going to be looking at the last six verses we've been kind of working our way through. And as we remember, the psalmist starts off and he just says, you know, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. This, you have searched me, and you know me. And all the way through, there's this, it, God, it's about you and me, and it's a whole lot more about you than it is about me, but I see you and how you've worked in me. You were there at my conception. It was you and me. And through the life's ups and downs, and even in the darkest chapters, you were there, and you knew, and you never left me. And you've ordained every day for me. 
And early on in this chapter, he comes to this conclusion that, that this idea about God being with me is such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's amazing, God, when I understand this truth about who you are and about your commitment to me, your involvement with me. God, this gives me confidence. It gives me assurance. It gives me peace. And so we get into this, and we see it all the way through. And then we get to this final six verses. And while the chapter ends on a very strong note, a hugely strong note, there are these other four verses, verse 19 through 22, that are just a little bit different. Maybe you picked up on this as you've been reading it. These last, uh, these four verses, uh, 19 through 22, it's like these send up a little bit of a flag. They, they throw up some question marks. They raise some eyebrows. It's like they don't seem to fit. It's like there's this, this, this train of thought, and then there's this, this, this derailing here, and, and, and attitude, and then it changes. The whole temperature changes. And these, it's like these four verses are like that uncle you have. You know, that uncle that he's a part of the family, but you're kind of embarrassed about him. And he defies all, you know, all explanation, but he's part of the, he's there, and you just kind of deal with it. That, that's, I feel like these, these four verses are kind of like that uncle. Because he's going along, and he's speaking with such poetic and beautiful language. And he's talking about the intimate relationship with God and his God's involvement. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just says, oh, God, if you would just slay the wicked. Like, what? Hello, bipolar. What's going on, David? If you would just slay the wicked, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, and abhor those who rise against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Mic drop. And you just want to go, whoa, buddy. Breathe. Just relax a little bit. Just show of hands, any of you, as we've been studying this, any of you at all say, what's those four verses about? How did they, you know, come, okay, not as much as I thought. The rest of you are like, oh, that's normal. That's how I live my life. I, to me, it's just like, that just seems out of, out of context. It's like, well, you know, scriptures that make you go, yeah. In fact, some commentaries would state that they believe those four verses are out of place. Like they belong in a different psalm and somehow, I don't know, somewhere back in the, the pages got shuffled and they got in there or something like that. I think that they belong, and let me try to explain why I think they're there and what I think is going on. And like I did last week, I want to tell you a story, give you an example that is inadequate, but it helps maybe illustrate it. It's a story that happened to me about two weeks ago. So in preparing for this series, and throughout this series, I just decided... Every time I got in my car by myself, whether I'm leaving my house or leaving the church or going to the hospital or, or going to the store, every time I got in my car, I would just recite Psalm 139 before I turned on the radio, before I listened to any music or any CD, I would just recite this, just let this be kind of a trigger and so throughout the day. And this is the way it's been. It's been fantastic. So a couple of weeks ago, I'd run an errand, went up to Hagen's. And I was leaving Hagen's, got back into my car, and was quoting Psalm 139, went all the way through it. And as I came up over I-5, I stopped at the stoplight, and there in the left-hand turn lane that's going onto the freeway, one car ahead of me, was a vehicle, and I know this is a gross stereotype and I, I shouldn't do this, but judging by the, the, the vehicle and the numbers of stickers on the back windows and the types of stickers that were on the back windows, I made the assumption that this driver or owner of this vehicle was somewhere a male between 18 and 30 years old. Now, it may not have been, it may have been your grandmother, but it was just a little bit out of place. 
So as I'm sitting there at the stoplight, I'm looking at the back of this car with all these different stickers of all these companies that he seems to be endorsing and wishing he was sponsored by, which he probably was not. But I was looking at all these stickers, and then I noticed a sticker that looked like this. Now, some of you say, well, that's, that's probably from the, the group, the band Bad Religion. Regardless, I saw this sticker, and there was an internal reaction to this symbol. There was something that happened inside me. Because the cross is very, very precious to me. And because I know the pain that was endured on the cross. And I know the blood that was shed on the cross. And I know the reason that Jesus went to the cross. And the cross is central to what we believe and all we're about. I can understand if there was the international symbol of church because the church has made a lot of mistakes. And I could get like, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I can understand if it was the symbol with a little fish because Christians have, have a tendency to maybe be obnoxious and people say, I don't want to be a part of that group. I can understand if it had the symbol with a clerical collar because guys like me, pastors and priests, we've made mistakes. I get that. But not the cross. The cross is different. And as I was sitting there at this red light, my mind went into action. And I'm not necessarily proud of, you, proud of this. And, and it's amazing how, my, how quickly our minds can react. Because as I'm sitting there at the red light and I'm seeing this car and thinking, there's some punk kid in there with his anti-cross sticker, I thought to myself, if I were God. <laughs> and then I started putting together this scenario of what I would do if I were God. If I were God, when his light turned green and he started getting on that on-ramp of the freeway and his subwoofers are thumping and his rap music is pumping, I would, I would touch his stereo in such a way that it would be locked in on the cathedrals or some southern gospel quartet singing, so I cherish the old rugged cross. And it would repeat it like a record that was stuck in the groove over and over again, so I cherish the old rugged cross. And no matter what he does, he can't turn it up, he can't turn it down, he can't turn it off, he can't get the CD out. It's just all going crazy. And as he's going on the on-ramp and he's trying to figure out what's going on with his stereo that's blaring out, so I cherish the old rugged cross, I would just appear in his passenger seat <laughs> and say, you have a problem with the cross, I see. And as he's trying to figure out where did I come from and what's going on with this music, as he's speeding up to 70 miles an hour on the freeway and I'm talking to him about the cross, I direct his attention and say, you might want to watch out for that one. And there in front of him, I would have holograms of crosses that look very real. They're not. And as he's going, he would swerve and he would swerve. And as he swerves, he does this fishtail and he spins around, which causes a truck to jackknife. And all the things come to a stop. And there he is, just a millimeter away from the truck. And there in front of him is the mud flap with a cross on it. <laughs> not that anyone was injured, but that he would thoroughly soil himself. And then I would disappear. And then when he goes home to shower off and clean up, he would get out of the shower and look in the mirror, and there on his forehead would be the cross. Not an Ash Wednesday cross, a Mikhail Gorbachev port wine stained cross that he couldn't get off. And then my light turned green, and I had to go home. <laughs> Mic drop. There you go, anti-cross boy. That's what I would do if I were God. To which you're saying, whoa, pastor. <laughs> to which I said, whoa, pastor. How quickly you went from quoting the very words of God to fabricating a scenario that just inflicts punishment on this kid that Jesus died for. And I wonder if it was that similar kind of reaction that David has. That is, he's just extolling the beauty of God. 
the magnificence of God. He recognizes that not everyone feels that way. Not everyone understands that. Not everyone sees that. In fact, they go the exact opposite. And so in this visceral response that David just writes with this, this unfiltered zeal for God, it's for God's defense. It's, it's against these people. Because he's just been talking about how God is all-knowing, how God is all-powerful, how God is all-present, how personal God is, how God knows us, how he created us, how he's with us, how God has ordained each day. He's just spoken about with awe and wonder and worship and majesty about God. And he says in verse 20, he says, they speak of you with evil intent. How could they do that? God, I speak of you with worship and awe. And your adversaries misuse your name. Now, wait a second. If you know anything about the Hebrew mind, you can do a lot of stuff. But don't mess with the name of our God. There was nothing more sacred or more holy than the name of God. And that was one of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. It was such that they wouldn't even utter the word. They, they, they substituted the word, the name that God had given to them with the word Adonai, which was a title. And to this day, many, many Jewish people will not speak or write the name of God. It's so sacred. And they're misusing your name. And on top of that, maybe he's thinking about this out of Leviticus. Say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. This was very serious. The entire assembly must stone him, whether an alien or native born, when he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. God, they're misusing your name. It's no wonder he says, I hate them. They're my enemies. And David, if you've ever read the Psalms, you know that David, he writes unfiltered all the time. This isn't the first time, and it's not the only time that he said something like this. Psalm 74, he says, how long will the enemy mock you, O God? He just gets defensive for his God. How long will you let this go on? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Said so God, man, I'm defensive for you and for your name and what these people are doing. And here we see that anthropomorphic term again, the hand of God, the same hand that hems me in behind and before, the hand that he laid on me, the hand that hand selected me, the hand that blessed me, the hand that guides me, the hand that holds me fast, the hand on whose palm is my name written. Why don't you take that hand, God? Unfold your arms, take it from the fold, and destroy them, crush them. You see where he's coming from. He's defensive for his God. It's like that old story of the thief who goes into a, into a house, and he's got his flashlight, and as he comes into the living room, his, his, his robbery is interrupted with a voice from the corner that says, I see you, and so does Jesus, and it startles him. And he hears it again, I see you, and so does Jesus. And he takes his flashlight, and he shines it over, and it's a parrot. And he walks over to the parrot, and he's laughing, and the parrot says, I see you, and so does Jesus. And he's laughing at the parrot. And then he hears this growling, and he turns the flashlight down, and there's this rottweiler. And the parrot says, sick him, Jesus, sick him. And it's like he's saying, come on, sick him, Jesus. Do it. Take that right hand. Let him have it. Isn't that what Jonah did? Jonah gets so ticked at God. Isn't that what I was doing at the stoplight? Come on, God. But no, you're rich in mercy and slow to anger. 
full of loving kindness. Come on, God, he says. And in the midst of this vent, in the midst of this rant, when he's just going off on defense of his God, I think he stops and he has a moment. It's a moment of realization and introspection. When he just stops for a minute and he realizes what he's saying. And he begins to really think through these words. And he doesn't edit them. He leaves them in there. But maybe he just starts thinking, what if God answered my prayer? What if God did slay the wicked? Well, who does that include? I mean, how wicked do you have to be to qualify for that? I mean, is it the really, really wicked? Or is it the pretty wicked? Or the kind of wicked? I mean, where's that line drawn? And, and is it only people that are wicked all the time? What about those people who are wicked regularly, but not always? And what about those people that are wicked occasionally? And when's God going to slay them? Right in the midst of their wickedness? Or at the end of the world? I mean, it brings up all kinds of questions. If God were to slay the wicked, who is that going to be? And who makes that call? And when's it going to happen? And then maybe his mind goes back to words that he had written years before in Psalm 14. It says, all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good not even one, including myself. And maybe as he thinks about this whole request that God would have his way with the wicked, maybe he thinks back to the darkest chapter for him in his life. Maybe he remembers the words of the prophet who confronted him on his evil. After he had committed ba uh, adultery with Bathsheba, most likely against her will, which would constitute rape. And then he tries to lie and cover it up, which results in murder. And the prophet says to him, why did you, David, man after God's own heart, writer of the Psalms, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And that whole thing about, you know, be gone, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. And maybe David stops and he thinks about the words he said to his son Solomon. And David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. And maybe David realizes if God's going to slay the wicked and cast out the bloodthirsty, he has to start with me. I'm no different than anyone else. In Psalm 131, of the Psalms of Ascent, he says, Oh Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, if you marked our iniquities, who could stand? Who of us could stand right before you? Not one of us, including me. 
And out of this moment of, of realization about his own sin, his own iniquity, even his own attitude towards those who are wicked and misusing the name of the Lord, comes this most beautiful, powerful, transformational prayer, the solid, rock-solid ending of this psalm. And as he gets to these last two verses, he writes out this prayer. And this prayer, as if God needed it, this prayer is an invitation to scrutinize at the deepest level. Not that God needs that kind of invitation, but as you'll see here, he just opens him up, he opens himself up for the ultimate audit. He opens himself up for the ultimate inspection, for the ultimate examination, for the ultimate exam, uh, in, in investigation. He just opens himself up. And here's what's amazing, is how he bookends this psalm with a similar thought. As I mentioned last week, the downside of taking little bits and pieces all the way through is we miss some of the global themes of this verse, of this chapter. In Psalm 139, we see this. He opens up, as we've already looked at, he opens up with these verses, with these words, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. That was the very first verse. You've searched me and you know me. Now in verse 23, he comes along and says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He comes back to the same theme. It's like, God, you've already searched me. And now he says, I open you up. Come back and search me some more. Which you think, whoa, David, that's not a smart thing. I mean, who of us? Who of us, if we were ever audited by the IRS, and they look through some things and say, yeah, you look pretty good. And they're walking out. You say, wait, 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 wait. I just thought about another box of, of receipts and stuff I've got. Come on, come back. I've got a file cabinet. You, gotta, you didn't look through this one. Like, who would do that? Just leave well enough alone. You've searched me and you know me. And he says that. God, you know. You know the things I think. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern the things I do. You're familiar with all my ways. The words I say, before I say them, you know them. God, you know all the things I think, all the things I do, all the things I say. But I want you to examine my heart. Let's go deeper. Let's go to the root of the issue. Let's get to the source. You know what I say, you know what I think, you know what I do. But I want you to find out why. Why do I say these things? Why do I think this way? Why do I act like this? What's underneath it all? And the writer of Proverbs says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And Jesus said, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's deep underneath there, God? I want you to search at the deepest levels. Is there pride or self-centeredness, selfishness? What, what's down there? Is there lust and greed that's hidden away down there? Is there anger and bitterness and vengeance that I'm holding on to? God, am, am I harboring some, some envy and some jealousy? Is there a prejudice down there? Is there judgment? What's down there? And God, I want you to search that out. Now, sometimes we use the phrase, I use the phrase, and I hope you know my heart. I've used it with you in this room. I hope you know my heart on this. It's like, hey, this could be misunderstood. Please know something deeper. And I wonder if maybe I don't even know my own heart on some things. Maybe David didn't even know what was deep. And Jeremiah says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. If you're ever like wondering, oh, I don't know, should I marry him, should I not? And your sweet little grandmother says, oh, honey, just follow your heart. That's the worst advice ever. Don't listen to your grandmother. She says, no, no, don't, don't follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful. 
and above all things and beyond, beyond cure. And who can understand it? Maybe I don't even know what's down there. I don't even know what motivates me. I don't even know what's, what's deep within of why I do these things, why I say these things, why I act this way. So God, I'm asking you, would you search me? Would you investigate at the deepest level what's going on inside my heart? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. And then he says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Test me. That, that, that again is when I'm like, I don't think I would ever ask God to test me. I mean, life's tough enough and God's going to give us a test or some of your translations say, try me. Maybe what he's saying is, God, you know, right now, when, when everything's great, I worship you, I praise you, I trust you, I, you know, sing your praises, it's all good. But what about when it's not? What about when, when the valley's deep? What, what about when the night is dark? What about when there's uncertainty about the future? What about when my prayers aren't being answered the way I thought or when I thought? What about when it seems like you're distant, like it seems like you've, you've neglected me? What about then? How are my thoughts then? At that point, do I get anxious? Do I start doubting? Start taking things into my own hands? Do I still trust you in those seasons? Do I still worship you? Do I still write songs about how great you are, even in those times? Test me and know my anxious thoughts. You know, it's an amazing thing what he does here when he invites God into this. And some of you um, are familiar with recovery, working the steps, which, by the way, the, the 12 steps are phenomenal for all of us. But I think some of those steps are more difficult than others. And maybe especially number four. A huge, huge step, a very difficult step, is the searching and fearless moral inventory. Because it goes contrary to everything we as humans want. We want people to think the best, know the best, believe the best about us. We want them to see the best. I mean, this starts from our, our original mother and father, Adam and Eve. They sin. What do they do? They hide and they cover. Why? Because they don't want to expose the bad in their life. And for all of these years, that's what we've done with our own sin. We hide and we cover. We hide and we cover. We put up an image like we're better than we are, like we want to be, like we're aspiring to be, but it's not the true image of who we are. And David comes along, and he just says, you know, I want to do this searching and fearless moral inventory, and I don't want to be the one that does it, because I know my tendency. God, I want you to do this. I want you to do a fourth step with me. I want you to show me the things I don't even see. I don't want to justify, I don't want to rationalize, I don't want to build a case for why this is okay. I don't want to excuse anything. I want to come out of hiding and take the fig leaves off. I want to be completely exposed to you, God. Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And he says this, and see if there is any offensive way in me. Now, I just want for a minute, lock down on each of these words. Any offensive way. Because again, I, I think... If it comes to something we want to pass fail, we want to squeak through, we want bare, you know, minimum entrance requirements, we want to just do enough. He says, no, 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 any, any. Like, God, I'm asking you. I'm asking you to use a fine-tooth comb. Like, use a magnifying glass. Use a microscope. 
unearth everything. Bring it all to light. Bring it out in the open. Expose it all. Any, any. I mean, this is all inclusive. Any. And then this word offensive. Let me just say something that I'm not sure that I fully developed this thought, and I don't know that I even believe it. So you got that going for you. But here's something I think we do, and this isn't really, don't, don't take notes on anything, just listen. Is I think sometimes we rank how bad and how dark things are. So, you know, at the lowest, deepest level, there's evil, there's wickedness. And we think of people like Adolf Hitler or Idi Amin or ISIS, you know, these, these people, you just, just deplorable. That we need to rid our world of this cancer. It's evil, wicked. And then the next level up, maybe not quite as dark, is immoral and illegal. And most of us, to one degree or another, have fit into that category. And we're not real proud of it. And we know it's not best. But it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a part of our society and it's reality. And, but there's redemption for that. And then maybe not quite as bad as things that are, you know, like, well, they're bad and they're wrong, but you're not going to get arrested for them, and you know you're okay. But th- th- you shouldn't do it. But it's bad and wrong. And maybe a little lighter is something that's, you know, hurtful or unkind or mean. And then at the top level is offensive. And honestly, in the U.S. right now, everyone is so easily offended by everything. And right now, some of you are offended that I even said that. Like, case in point. Like, everyone's so offended by everything. They read into everything. Everyone's offended. Everyone offends everyone, and we're all offended, and it's just kind of this level. And what if he's saying, listen, God, I want you to go through every part of my life, not just the deepest, darkest things, those things, obviously, and not just things that are immoral and illegal, obviously, and and they're wrong, and they're bad, and, and they're hurtful. Even if, God, even if you were overly sensitive, if there was something that I did that was offensive to you, I want you to point that out to me. Any, anything, I don't care how small it is, any offensive, any offensive way. The way that I think, the way that I talk, the way that I interact in my relationships, the way that I do my marriage, the way that I parent, the way that I have, have entertainment, the way that I do my business, the way that I am in my sexuality, the way that I am in my attitude towards others. Is there any offensive way at all? And God, I want you to do this because I know me. Either I'll be too easy on myself and I'll justify some things, cover some things up and say it's not that big of a deal. Or there's probably things I don't even realize. I don't even see them. So I'm asking you. I love how Psalm 19 ends up. When he says, who can discern his errors? God, there's things I don't even see. Forgive my hidden faults. I'm not just hiding them from others. I don't even see them. I don't, I don't even know. And keep your servant also from willful sins. And may they not rule over me. Then, then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. These willful sins, God, I know. I know the things I've done. I chose those. I intentionally decided to do those. And there's other things I don't even recognize, and I know it breaks your heart. I willfully sinned. And yet, you see, in this closing part of Psalm 139, there's this willful repentance and submission. This willfulness to say, listen, God, I know I've done these things, and I'm asking you to search me. I I don't want to do these. And then there's this submission. Submission. 
this surrender to God. Because he ends the whole thing, and he says, and lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. All the way through this psalm, he's been saying, God, it's you and me. It's you and me. It was you and me at creation. It was you and me throughout my life. It was you and me every morning. It was you and me as I went through my day. It was you and me as I walked through the dark valleys. It was you and me that ordained, you ordained every, every day for me. You and me, you've done all these things, and now you have searched me completely, even to the deepest part of my, my, my heart. And God, if you would do all that and still love me and still be com- committed to me, then I can trust you to know that you would love me still. Then I'm asking you to lead me. And, and didn't he say earlier, God, you do. You, you lead me beside still waters, and you restore my soul. And you, you guide me in right paths, in the paths of righteousness. So God, I'm asking that you would, you would lead me now in the way everlasting. You know, the ways I think, that they'd be the ways you think. The ways I act, the, the ways that I speak, the ways that I relate, the way that I live my life would be according to your word, according to your will, according to your way. In Jeremiah, the word is given, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. This is speculation on my part. But I wonder, when David prays this at the conclusion of 139, and lead me in the way everlasting, I wonder if God was orchestrating and ordaining things that David didn't even understand. Because a thousand years later, God himself would, appo- uh, it would appear in the form of a human and would say these words, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Follow me. And maybe David doesn't even realize this, but what he's praying is this, Father, lead me to Jesus. Lead me to Jesus. Lead me in this way, everlasting. This prayer that he concludes the psalm with, I think it takes incredible humility, unbelievable courage, and complete trust to pray it with all sincerity. You have to humble yourself enough. You have to be courageous enough. You have to trust enough to pray this prayer. And I wonder if today, as we conclude the psalm, the series, in our time together, if we could read it together. Now, I can't force you to mean it. I can't force you to say it from your heart. I, I can't in any way dictate that this comes from a genuine, you know, surrendered heart. But, but maybe we could just, just read it and just see how that feels. W- would you read this with me out loud? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, here's my challenge for you. Because we, we end the series today. But what if you began to pray this prayer every single day?
Now, I know some of you are memorizing parts or all of the psalm. Continue on. Some of you not memorized. This would be a good two verses to memorize. To memorize these. And to every day, every night, maybe every morning, maybe throughout the day, that you would pray these words. The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you? And abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any, any, any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I pray that for the rest of your days on this earth, Psalm 139 will be your psalm. That you will find the truth and the meaning. And that throughout our lives, we will continue to repent and to surrender and pray this prayer. You know, it's been exciting to hear people and how God has spoken through his word throughout this series. And there's been some really cool things that have happened. Uh, in, with our artists, uh, we, just, we sang that song that, that Ron wrote, you, know, you chose me, you, you know me, that whole song, we sang that. A couple weeks ago after Refuge, on a Wednesday night, I was in the back and, and Ron said, hey, uh, Luke has been writing a song out of Psalm 139 as well. Luke uh, leads worship, in fact, he's leading worship next week and his wife, Raina, is with us this morning. He said, Luke's been writing this song as well and he played me the, the course of it. And I, I texted Luke that night, I said, hey, uh, Ron, you know, Played me the course of your song you're writing. Keep writing it. And ran into him again last week, I think. I said, Luke, finish that song. And he did. 
And I, I asked Ron this week, I said, could we close with that song? Another that came, you know, just out of this, this study of Psalm 139. And uh, Luke was out of town last night, and he's sick this morning. So, um, so Luke and Raina wrote this song, and I, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Ron and, and Raina to come and, and share this song. And let these words, we're going to have the words on the side screens. Let the words minister. Don't sing along. Just let the words minister to you with this beautiful psalm, and then I'll close this in prayer.